that if you're writing a book, you've been writing for so long, you, it's like medical school times 10. And it's like, if you want to write a book, keep your job and start writing every day. And once you've trained yourself to write, then write your book. Welcome back to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives. This episode features writer Jessica Anya Blau. She's published multiple novels. She's a ghostwriter, and now she's actually developing a TV show also. What we discovered is Jessica has no filter. We love it, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Hashtag no filter. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Um, we've been looking forward to this for a really long time. I think, uh, you know, we've uh, scheduled this a little while out, which was good because it gave us time to really cram um, some of your novels, which was a lot of fun. And I know we're going to get into that, but. Uh, did you, did you really read them? Yeah. Uh, we listened. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think. Listening listen. is reading. No, well, listening no. is reading. But most people, like if they do an interview, they like skim or they read the no. first chapter or they no. read about it. So we, you guys are like the real deal. We're like the real deal. You so actually read. I've only read two. Well, that's incredible that so, you read more than one. I um, I, and I, I, I more that. traditionally read Wonder Bread's Summer. Oh, good. Because I couldn't get the audiobook of that one. <laughs> oh, they didn't have that. Oh, you, oh, I didn't know you read. You actually picked up. We've had this conversation before right. about whether listening is actually reading. I think and it is. Think, think, think about it is. when you were a little kid and people right. read to you. I love that you're saying that. And then yeah. two legit Novelists have reaffirmed yeah, that. I, yeah, I mean, I love being read to. I like being read to by an actual person in the room. What well, was it? Matt was telling us, Matt Norman, a uh, friend of yours, friend of ours, um, that he has a friend who will hold the physical book and read it, but also listen to the audio book. So the person's uh, reading it, which I thought was really bizarre, but. It, yeah, I, I actually know a couple of people who do that. And you see people at readings pull out the book and read along with the author. Really? Yeah, I see people do that. Frequently, I wonder. Wow. I wonder why. It, it, well, they say that um, listening and then reading and then writing and then teaching are the. It's, that's that's the hierarchy of learning. So maybe if you're listening and reading at the same time, you right. absorb it better. Or it forces you to listen. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, no. To your point, I do read. I actually surprised myself. It's been a while to actually put the book. In. Well, thank you for reading and listening. You guys are very nice. Yeah, we had thank fun. You. And then we're going to get into that, I think, a little bit later. But um, this is Creative House. So we're going to start maybe back a little bit. Um, not totally your origin story, but really want to get into your process. You know, uh, I think the biggest question I have is how we've talked to some novelists and we want to see how we can compare and contrast the two approaches. Um, and if you could kind of just maybe get into that a little bit. I and, mean, you know, um, you know, you started writing, I think, a, a, a few years ago based on, you were doing something else prior to that? Yeah, I was, I was in Canada. Canada. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Just that's being mysterious. in Canada. I was, I was being in Canada. Is what Canada was? finished yet? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> they're still working on it. <laughs> yeah. So no, I was in Canada and I wasn't, go. yeah, I wasn't allowed to go to school or work. I didn't have, I, I wasn't legally allowed to do that. What so did you do? Well, I wrote, well, first of all, I was like obsessively clean. So the house was really clean. And then I was obsessively like pulling weeds from my garden and the old Greek woman next door would come over with a fork and she's like, you must pull with fork. And so we would sit there with forks and weed my garden. So Is that a I, life hack? 
Because <laughs> I don't know. She did cla- it work? Well, she claimed it took out the good grass and not the bad grass, but there would just be these brown dirt patches after she'd attacked my grass with oh. a fork. And it was always like, and I just thought, well, I'll just do it because. Uh, so you weeded grass. She had wisdom. That's next level. Well, she had wisdom and I was lonely, I think. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I will do anything just to have a human next to me, even forking my grass. Okay. For like three hours. So that would be a good novel name, Forking My Grass. <laughs> Oh I my think. God, it really was. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, I love that. Oh, okay, good. Well, I'm glad this is recorded because I don't have to write it down. Yeah, so, and uh, and then I would write. And so I would write every day. I would just write, 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 like mad. And then I found that if I wrote in the day, I didn't feel insane. And if I didn't write, I felt insane. So, because I was, I didn't know anybody and right. it was cold, you know, what well, wasn't always cold. When we forked the grass, it was nice out. Right, right. <laughs> so, so how did you develop your, your writing regimen uh, then and maybe until now? How have things changed? So then, so I guess because I just can't take myself too seriously. I never really, I mean, it was just, I wrote, I would just write a couple hours and then I had a baby and so I would write when the baby slept or, you know, if she was doing a puzzle and I would sit down and write. So I've always just written when I could. So I just write whenever I can. So there'll be noise and people and, you know, I'll have my computer in the car and, you know, I'll write when I get a pedicure. I'll, I'll write anytime. Okay. I thought you were in, I write when I'm at the stoplight. I'm like, this is getting dangerous. We're going to have to censor. Well, but that is a good uh, question. I mean, we've obviously talked to a lot of different types of creative people and you can't control, most people can't control when their ideas come. So what do you do to capture those thoughts and inspirations and even pieces of dialogue, for example, that you do? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you can, well, I guess I don't know about controlling it. I guess I don't try to control it. I don't think I can control anything. So, um, so it's more just, I like, now's the time I sit down and I do it. So I think I have, well, I think I've always been, I've always been really good at disassociating. Like I've float above myself a lot. And as a little kid, I was the silent person watching. So I think I'm a very disassociative person, which makes me slightly freaky. Maybe I don't know, but makes you creative. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So I'm in that space. So I'm yeah. naturally in that space. I'm naturally in that sort of hollow space in my head. So when I sit down to write, it's like, I'm just allowed to be there. I, uh, I had read that you went and did a reading at a naked book club. Yeah. So I guess my question is, is trying strange new things and as much as possible, does that factor in? Well, it doesn't, I don't know if it factors into the writing, but I do, I am curious about everyone. Like I am always curious. So I am, it's, I'm fine with naked, any kind of person. So, um, yeah. So for that, it was just like, really, what is this going to be like? And then when I got there and every, every person I told, every friend I told, they're like, Oh, I want to go with you. And I kept talking to girlfriends and I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I want to go. And by the end I had five of my girlfriends going with me and, and you know, I mean, all people are beautiful and all humans are beautiful and I love everyone, but it just happened to be my girlfriends who look like they were models kind of like, it was just like the, these really particularly pretty women. Mm-hmm. So I just remember we walked in and I have this like entourage of these beautiful women. And then the naked book club was like 35 men and one woman. And they're just like, their eyes lit up 
and they kept trying to get us to go naked and nobody would go naked. You know, we're like, oh, no, no, no. we just, you know, we just wouldn't do it. So we were dressed and they were naked. And when we got there, the book club wasn't starting yet because naked yoga was happening. So I, it's the same group. It was the same group. Oh, wow. Like some people were like working out and some people were eating pizza and some people were in yoga and I had to put, stick my head in and just see. And they were in downward dog right when I walked in and I just thought, it's just, I, I mean, it probably feels good to do naked yoga. I mean, I think I've actually even done it in my bedroom. Like I'm getting dressed and I'll just do a quick yoga. It kind of feels good, but I, I actually don't even want to see myself doing naked Did yoga. Did you walk into the front door or the back door of the class? It was sort of the back. Oh, yeah. Okay. And well, it's like a really kind though. of dangly view. Mm. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's it. like, I mean, it's interesting that like the, well, the male, I mean, you know, the male body, it's a great thing, but there are certain points of view where you kind of don't want to look at it. Like as yeah, much as you might like 100%. it, you, you just don't want to see it. No, I agree, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't come out the same. This is a really good segue. Where do you get the ideas for your stories? Just everywhere. I mean, everywhere they're hitting me all the time. Will, will that research at the naked book club be appearing as fodder for any future novels? No, I don't think so. It no? didn't. It, I mean, it was interesting. It was, it was very interesting. I mean, it was interesting on many levels. I mean, first of all, was the smell of the place when we walked in, it sort of smelled like testicles. Mm. And I just thought, wow, an entire room that smells like balls. And you um, know, so, so uh, ratio between men and women in this book club? 39 to 1 okay. until we walked in. Oh. Then it was like 39 to 6. Okay. So, and that one woman, I was just thinking, you know, she was there with her boyfriend. And I was just thinking, oh, like I, I kind of wanted to like hold her close to me. Like I kind of <laughs> wanted to be like, just come over here with us, naked woman. Like we'll take care of you. Like, but she was, she was cool. I mean, she was relaxed. Cool. She was with her boyfriend and- and now yeah. you have a whole legion of naked fans. I guess. I mean, I think we're all naked. So maybe any fan is naked at some point. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe I only have one fan. That's exciting. You know. I think it's exciting too. Where, I, I'm, we're spending a lot of time on this, I realize, but <laughs> where like, was this? Like state, <laughs> like, town? Well, the weird thing is it was, it was an undisclosed location. It was like, it was like a black site for naked Jesus. people. Yeah, because they, and they said they didn't want me to ever say where it was. Because they had sort of taken over, they regularly took over like a health club spa and the people who belonged to the health, they didn't, okay. like the people who owned it didn't want them to know that a naked group met there regularly. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, it so, wasn't in Baltimore though. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why I'm asking. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to. I can hook you in if you well, want. I'm wondering whether I want to go or stay away. I just, I don't know. <laughs> It's well, intriguing. Well, the people were nice. People, you know, people are nice. Gotcha. And when they take their clothes off, I mean, I think, I don't know. It's hard Freedom. to be pretentious with your clothes off. So that yeah. curiosity, it sounds like you're very curious. I mean, yeah. would you say you more or less than other writers that you've met along the way? Or do you think that's a superpower you have? I No, I think most writers are curious. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think a lot of them are. I mean, you, I mean, I meet people in... There's almost nothing I don't want to know about somebody. I mean, people will be like, is that too much information? I'll think, no. I, I mean, there's just like no place somebody can go. I mean, maybe their bathroom habits. I just like. You right. seem like the type of person that can pretty freely start a conversation with nearly anyone. Is that, is that accurate? Or? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I like every, I mean, I like everyone until they 
to do something that would cause me not, but I start out Which liking everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And I am curious. I am, I mean, I do think everybody is equally, I, th- I don't know, maybe not equally, but everybody's fascinating no and matter you, what. And you've lived a fair amount of time in New York and to still be able to say that is, yeah. is also commendable. Well, and everybody <laughs> in New York is fat. I mean, people are fascinating and yeah. I mean, I was thinking of something, like I met somebody last night who I'd never met before. And um, so I just won't disclose anything about her. But she she told me that she'd recently bought a vibrator and I just met her. And I said, oh, well, that's that's interesting. And I said, what do, what do you do, like watch TV when you use it? And I was sort of just kidding because we'd been talking about television. And she said, yeah. And then she told me the show she watched, which were like these sort of like main you know, primetime network shows. And I thought, that's like one of the most interesting things I've ever heard. But that might go into a story sometime. But anyway, I had just met her and she was really lovely and kind and smart. But it was an interesting place for the conversation to go, I thought. Because I didn't bring it up. I didn't say, hey, have you ever ordered a vibrator? I mean, like we were talking about something else. She was very forthcoming in terms of like providing yeah, we were, that information. Yeah, we were tangentially <laughs> on something like that. And then she was like, yeah, I recently ordered a vibrator. And I was like, oh, that's great. What? Okay. Now, so you're in that conversation mm-hmm. and you did just say, maybe I'll use that in the book and you could be kidding or maybe not. But when you meet people or even maybe people, you know, are you diving into conversations, trying to get ideas or does it just sort of happen? Sometimes you're like, no. that sparks something. Yeah, no, I'm never trying to get ideas. I mean, with her, it didn't even occur to me that I would put that into a book. But of everything, of all the conversations I had last night at this little party, the thing that I thought about this morning the most was the television show she was watching with that vibrator. And I just thought, I just found that so interesting. Is that something that gets recorded down somewhere or you're like jot a note down to yourself to for, you know, is there an idea pile or I mean, like sometimes, a, yeah, on my yeah, phone yeah. and I do have notebooks, but I didn't write that down because I didn't really think about it until I was. Well, that one's hard right. to forget. I'll there be honest with you. Yeah. But the reason I asked that was we um, did an episode with a television writer named Greg Garcia and he said one of the things that he does to sort of break out of his maybe um, easy lane is to go try new things. And one of the things he said was he signed up to become an electrician, oh. for example. And he wasn't going there to talk to people to get an idea. He was going there to figure out what electricians go through. Right. So that's why I asked you, you know, when you're talking to people, is something happening in there in your brain to sort of maybe even take it to a different lane. Ooh, sorry. Right away. I don't, I mean, I don't think I'm ever thinking about writing when I'm talking to people, but I do think, I mean, I do feel like I could die any minute and I am alive now and like my legs are working. I can breathe, you know, I mean, I haven't washed my hair and you know, you guys know my hair situation, but at least (laughs) I have hair and I'm like, I'm happy about that. So I just sort of feel like I have to do if, if I can do something, I'll do it. If I can see something, I'll see it. And, and, I, and I'm a really terrified person. So, but I do all these things, even though I'm afraid of them. Hmm. So your, your initial books were, um, were they somewhat autobi- autobiographical? Like what, what percentage would you say those were? The, the first one, The Summer Naked Swim Parties, was sort of somewhat autobiographical, but it was sort of like I took my childhood and like I cleaned the house, like gave them a cleaning lady, and then I got rid of my brother, you know, I just sort of, you know, but it was sort of true. 
And then, so then after that one, I was like, eh, I want to just tell the truth. And so the next one had, you know, like my brother had a, I put my brother back in, you know, and he had a free flying bird in the house that would like shit all over the couch. And so the couch had this like hardened layer of white bird shit on it. And because the bird perched on a curtain rod above the couch and there was just like marijuana trees in the backyard and it was just, it was just chaos. So the second novel, I was like, you know, it is what it is. And I just, so the second one's very true. So then you've gotten those sort of very personal references out of, references out of the way. And then, then the third and, and subsequent novels, are you now, you're getting more and more away from your real life and you're, and you're well, more. One would think, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you said you read Wonder Bread Summer. Yes. Yeah. So you would think that it's like, it's, but it actually, it, it actually was, I was thinking about when I uh, lived in Berkeley and I got a job. I accidentally was working for a major cocaine dealer and I thought I was working in a dress store, but he was dealing cocaine. And so that happened. And so I was thinking about that one day and I was thinking, wow, that was kind of a strange time in life. And because he also kept pulling out his penis at work. So I was thinking about like him walking around this little dress shop with his, you know, this really very large dick that he would like hold with two hands. And it was like, I was thinking, you know, I was like really young and I needed the money and I needed the job and I didn't quit. And I just would like put my hand up and look away and I'd be like, eh, stop. You know, there was no me too. Nobody was, you know, I didn't like, it wasn't like, hey, call my mom and she'd be like, get, get out. You know, it was like, these things just happened and you rolled with it. Like it would not happen today. Although the other day I was driving, I have to tell you, I was driving down York Road and I was actually on the phone with my mother and some guy pulled out his dick and it was and it was a huge dick and he pulled it out and i just burst out laughing i was just could not stop laughing like on the side of the road yeah he was like stand like you if you're in york and you're kind of turning into homeland like i took like there was a cop car and everything stopped and somebody walked right in front of the car so even though the traffic was flowing i had a break and somebody walks in front of me and then right before i could go again some guy turns to me and pulls out his dick <laughs> and i just and i'm on the phone on speaker with my mom and i just like I mean, I think I like honk laugh, like, what? I just started laughing. I was like, mom, this guy just pulled out his dick. (laughs) And, you know, and there it was like right around. Oh, and there was like a cop like right behind me. And it was just, I just found it hilarious. So, and then I kept driving. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't wave or anything. I was just like, I was just like, wow. So anyway. So that stuff doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it, well, never. It's, never. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that stuff happens all the time, but, but back when I was young and working in that clothing store, it's like, I need the money and I need the job and the guy has his dick out and I just would like, uh, you know, so that sort of is true. And then, um, around that same time, so this is in Berkeley. Right. So around that same time, a guy I knew ran into my apartment and he had a bread bag and he was sweating. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, he's like panting and sweating. And then he unraveled the bread bag and he opened it up and it was a bread bag full of cocaine. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Like it kind of freaked me out. Like I didn't want him in my apartment running in my park because I'm thinking who's running behind you. So I said, like, get out of here. This is someone you knew or is this a random? It was somebody I knew. It was some some guy at Berkeley who, wasn't a student and pretended he was. So he like hung out in the cafes and hung out with everybody, but he actually wasn't a student and he just ran into my apartment. So I was like, get out of here. So he left. And so there's all these 
things that happen. And then I was set up on it. So that the bread bag shows up in the book and the guy with the penis shows up in the book. And then there's the quadriplegic porn producer in the book. Did you read the book too? I read uh, The Trouble with Lexi, but I didn't read One Bread Summer. Oh, okay. But okay. So when there was a quadriplegic porn producer. So when I was at Berkeley, I used to study at this cafe called Cafe Roma, which is on the corner of Bancroft and I can't remember university or something. So I'd study at this cafe and I, I loved this cafe and I would sit in this cafe every day. And this woman who always reminded me of Stevie Nicks would roll in this quadriplegic man who had a head pointer and a Ouija board and he would point out letters to speak. And he, she would roll him over to me and she was always like, Jessica, his name is Frank. She's like, can you hang out with Frank? And I'm going to go hang out with my friends. I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. I would study. And then I would always try and ask him yes, no questions because I just didn't have time for him to spell out a word. So right. I'd just be like, hey, everything good? And he'd be like, yes, no. Oh, and then you had to feed him his cappuccino. So she would hand me his drink. And I'd feed it. And his head would, he was, his head would like shake back and move back and forth a lot. And said, so you kind of followed him with the cappuccino and then nail it. You know, and then he had a beard and sometimes he'd be in the beard. And I'd, do I wipe it? Do I leave it? You know, I didn't want to humiliate him. So sometimes I'd wipe it, but then you got to chase him with a napkin. But he was a really nice guy. So the whole time I'm at Berkeley, I thought of him as my friend, Frank, because he would sit with me and I would study for long periods of time. And it was like company, you know, mm-hmm. he was nice. And we'd talk and he'd tell me a little bit. So then, um, so any of my friends would sit and everybody knew Frank. So at some point I was sitting there with Frank and his wife came. She's like, Jessica. She's like, yeah. like, Frank wants to know if you want to be in one of his movies. And I was like, what? <laughs> she's like, Frank wants you to be in one of his movies. And I was like, what movie? She's like, Frank's a director. You didn't know that? I was like, no. What, what do you mean? She's like, Frank directs movies. And I was like, oh, what, what do you want me to do in the movie? And I remember what I was wearing that day. I was wearing a pair of gray sweatpants that had a hole kind of right near the ass and like a big T-shirt. It was like finals. And I just was like this... I, I don't know. I look like a potato or something. You know, it was just like, and it was like, what do you, what does Frank want me to do in the movie? And she's like, well, they're really erotic and like you might have sex. And I was like, with who? And she's like, with Frank. And I was like, really? Frank does that? And she's like, oh yeah, Frank does a lot of things. And then she's like, and maybe with me and some of my friends. I was like, oh. And then in my head, all I was thinking is that I wanted to run home and tell my friend Betty about this because I just knew we would laugh just uproariously. I mean, Frank is my friend who has been sitting next to me and all the time. I did not know that he was making these erotic movies. So I said, I was very, pl- oh, okay, well, let me think about it. But the answer was hundred percent. No, but I just did the thing that you do with people on the street. Let me think about it. Said, oh, let me think about it. Okay. Just let us know. So, so anyway, Frank shows up in a different version yeah. in the film. And I also was set up on a blind date like that in a Mexican restaurant by a 40 year old man who set me up with one of his clients and I was 19 and he set me up with a quadriplegic in a wheelchair and the guy was so nice and I liked him and you know, I might date and marry a quadriplegic, but I was 19 and at the time I was kind of looking for somebody who yeah. could yeah. climb a mountain with me. Well, that, sure. that scene in the book is great. Cause like, um, she reacts the way she reacts was is very much how you say you reacted. She wasn't, you know, she hung out with the person and, and just made the best of the whole thing, but clearly super mad at her friend for, you know, kind of hoodwinking her a little bit in terms right. of what was happening. Cause she wasn't very truthful at the time, but it was cool. Cause like she, that's how she approached every situation in the book, which was a lot of fun. Right. Um, and we'll get to that. Cause I do have some very specific questions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me, this relates to, 
other characters that you've written too. And I think, you know, you started and said that you like everyone until they give you a reason not to. Do you want people to feel a certain way about your protagonist? Is that, do you, do you want readers to have feelings that you have or, or what? No, I don't think I want any, I want my readers to love the books, but I don't think about what they think of them when I write them, but I, I do get feedback from people. And like, I love all my characters and I don't think there's anything wrong with any of them. I'm, I'm not judging them, but I meet people who think my characters are horrible people and that's okay. I mean, that doesn't hurt my feelings, but I went, you know, some women invited me to a book club and there were like nine women and they were fun and funny and, you know, I mean, they were all great. There's nothing not to like about these women. And then they were sitting there and one of them said, well, I mean, and they'd read The Trouble with Lexi and in The Trouble with Lexi, she has an affair with a married man. And she said, well, I just, you know, I just was really upset. And I was thinking, I can't read a book about a woman who has an affair with a married man. I mean, I just, was, I mean, I can't like her and I hate her. And I just think, why am I going to read a book about a woman who has an affair with a married man? And then she paused for a second and she said, well, I mean, I guess I got my kid from an affair with a married man. I thought, really? And then the woman next to her said, well, you know, I, I agree. I have a hard time, you know, reading a book about, I mean, I had the same hard time. And then they all looked at her and she started laughing. She's like, well, I guess I got this house from an affair with a married man. And so I think, Wow. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, and I just sort of laugh, but I thought I, we're all flawed. I mean, I'm hugely flawed. And it's like, are we going to, are we going to admit it and look at it? Or are we going to pretend it doesn't exist? And, you know, and, and how, you know, I'm just thinking, you don't want to read about a woman who had an affair with a married man when both of you did. And the other women who, yeah, I, you know, everybody appeared to be telling the truth because these two told about their affairs. But the other woman who hadn't had affairs with married men had no problem with this character. I That's sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why I kind of asked because I I think people read and see movies to uh, see things they're not familiar with sometimes, which just seems totally normal to me. So to be judgmental about a character and then not read a book for that reason seems just totally weird to me. Right. Liking versus not liking is a different story. Like I think that, when you read a book, you you must like and dislike characters or at least what they do in certain situations. So in the case of The Trouble with Lexi, you know, Daniel was not a good guy. Like, let's just be honest. I don't know if you meant him to not be, but he wasn't. No, he's not. Lexi made some pretty bad decisions, I think. Disliked, liked some of them, whatever. But you're, I really want to know, like, you fall in love with that character do you feel like you are that character when you're writing any character? Do you think you're that character? How does, how does that go through your head? Yeah, no, it's like acting. You're in her head. I mean, which is maybe, and I mean, I'm sort of willing to forgive everybody anything. I mean, short of, you know, the bad, the real bad stuff, but um, yeah, it's like acting. And so you're in her head. And so for me, for Lexi, it's like, who hasn't been so insanely in love that they've done really, really dumb things? Like I have, I mean, and most people I know have, and you guys probably have. And so, and so it's, I don't, I mean, people judge it or don't judge it, but when I read a book, I just want to enter another life and feel another life and live another life for a moment. Like I want to not be myself and I want to be in some narrative dream and living somebody else's life whether it's good or bad or, I mean, it's just an interesting thing. I mean, maybe it goes back to being curious about people. I'm interested in living someone else's life. So with Lexi, yeah, when I'm writing it, I am her. Like I'm in her head and I'm her. And, and I know what it's like to be madly in love and just do the 
dumbest things. And I know it's like to want a clonopin and take too many. (laughs) So if, if, if writing her is like, like acting, but then you're, when you step back and look at the larger view, you're directing. Right. And I think one of the things I loved about uh, the trouble with Lexi was, um, I I might've said this to you, Jed, it was, it was like that show breaking bad where you, as I was watching and also as I was reading your book, I tried to imagine what's the worst thing that could happen right now. And inevitably it did. So that's why I had, I'm like, what could go over But did you imagine? Like, will she sleep with his son? <laughs> yep. Going to do that. <laughs> Spoiler, Spoiler alert. Sorry. Alert. We'll <laughs> have to say that at the beginning. Then, uh, hopefully you've read the, the book's been out long yeah. enough, people. Um, but like that, so that's what was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I was like, So you were anticipating that. Yeah. I mean, and we did, that one was ripped from the local Baltimore news. No. Yeah. And things but, like that don't happen in Baltimore. Oh, just like people, yeah, people don't yeah. whip out their penises. Oh in yeah. <laughs> things that, that particular instant, that particular relationship was ripped from the local Baltimore news. Really? And all I did was make him a little older. And, and part of that dynamic was thinking about the person in this town who did that and feeling empathy for him, feeling and thinking, what was she thinking and what was going on in her head and how did that go down? I mean, here's this person who isn't all bad and who I, and I think there are good qualities to her. And I'm thinking, what was she thinking when she did that? And so part of that scene is like trying to be in her head and understand that. Well, I think that's why it it was for me able to anticipate because you were setting up the context. It wasn't just like, I'm going to go do this. She was, you know, compromised chemically and, and emotionally and things like that. So right. you could kind of see like, well, here's the paths, right. nothing happens or the worst thing. Happens, right. Right. Yeah. And that makes good narrative drama and, 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 and tension. So that's right. what was fun. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you thought it was fun. And in books, we want to read about the stuff that we haven't done or we wouldn't do. Yeah. I mean, that's not something I've done and I don't ever want to do that, but it's interesting to imagine it. And I think you start with your cold open, um, you know, with the, you starting with that scene and working back, it's kind of like what we do with the show. You know, we'll start with a, a really great quote from, you know, like pull with people through and like hoping right. that's the juicy, all right, well, how do they build up to that quote? Right. So how do we build up to this scene? So I think that that's a right. pretty smart way to get in there too. Right. Well, and that was stolen from somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. That was stolen from a, um, I was doing some dinner thing in DC where people, some dinner club where they have somebody come and you read at the cocktails and then you read at the, I don't know, you know, it was one of those, I just was brought in to do these things and everybody was really nice. And they were all like, I don't know who they were. There was security there and they were all dressed up. And then the security approached me and they said, well, we think you have a stalker. Somebody who just got out of prison is here and he paid however much it costs to come. And we're very worried, but we're right on him and you don't have to talk to him. And blah, blah, blah. You know, they're very concerned. And so then they're keeping an eye on him and then they found him. And they're like, he's here. He's arrived. Do not talk to him. We've got our eye on him. And I looked over and it was like this really great looking guy in a suit. And I thought, well, I'm going to talk to him. <laughs> he just got out of prison. Like all I want to know is why was he in prison? Like I looked just like Ryan Gosling. I was just like, he why was hot. Ryan Gosling in prison? So I went over and talked to him. And of course, I, all I want to know is why he was in prison, but I did not, you know, I do have some filters. Like I am able to like understand that I can't, ask what I really want to know, which is actually why ghostwriting is great because you can ask anything. So I'm just trying to chat with him and just thinking, oh, you know, so I'm like, what have you been doing the past few years or <laughs> whatever, something. And somehow he told me he was in prison 
And then I said, oh, what were you in prison for? And he said, I was a drug addict. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I feel incredible empathy for addicts. Like nobody chooses that. Nobody wants to be that. And then I said, so, you know, were you stealing drugs or what happened? And they said, well, yeah, I stole some drugs. And they said, well, the problem wasn't really that I stole the drugs. The problem was that I fell asleep on the bed of the owner of the drugs. And then when he said that to me, I thought, oh, well, that's a good opening for a book. And that's how I started that book. That, so that was the narrative kernel and you built everything around that. So you right. knew, and I, I think that we were going to get into that. Like <laughs> you, had, that was the germ of the yeah. idea, right? Yeah. So is that, is that typical? Is that, is that yeah. your process? Yeah. Everyone started with a sentence in my head. So that one started with that. How do you, so walk us through the work back from that. So you, you have that down and do you, I mean, Matt said he uses actual physical post-it notes. Um, as a, as a tool to kind of keep his, he called them scenes, uh, organized. So do you manifest that in some sort of scene or do you, do you yeah. write that whole scene first and then you, you kind of no. walk it back? I mean, I'm not as organized as Matt. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. more together than me. No, I, you, most of them I would wrote a short story. So it's almost like I see the scene. Actually, all of them I started with a short story. Mm-hmm. So that one, I started with that image and I thought about, and I thought oh, I'm going to change it to a woman and I changed it to a woman. And I thought, well, why is she on, whose bed is it? And you know what, you know, and then I wrote, and so that was the first short story that sort of encompassed the scene with the boy and the, you know, and that okay. moment on the bed. And so that was a short, you know, and the, the story was published. And then um, with Wonder Bread Summer, I wrote a short story about her in the dressing room with him and his penis out. And so that was a short story. And that, I mean, I write a lot of short stories and it's almost like if they're published, then I was like, oh, okay. So somebody thinks it's good enough. Where to are they going. getting, where are they getting published at? Different literary magazines. I okay. mean, the one from Wonder Bread's Bummer was in New York Tyrant. And the one from, what else are we talking Lexi? Lexi. I can't remember where that was published. I can't, they get in, you know, in literary magazines yeah. and books and little, you know, like those books that are mm-hmm. literary books. Yeah. Most so people don't think I, of those literally. Yeah. I sort of, I thought when you said short stories that you meant your, uh, your technique is to take that thought and turn it into a short story and then intentionally string those things together. But you're literally saying it was a self um, contained short story. Yeah. Start to finish. Yeah. Right? So it's not necessarily, I'm going to write a novel. No, no, it's a short, it's a short story that's start to finish. And, um, I mean, with Naked Swim Parties, the sentence, I mean, I could, tell, I could tell you the sentences for each one. So with Naked Swim Parties, I was at Breadloaf in Vermont. And um, Lynn Freed, the South African writer, was like, rat, you have to rat one good sentence, rat one good sentence. And so I was trying to write a sentence. And the sentence I thought of was a memory from childhood of my parents at a naked swim party with all their friends naked and me in my bathing suit. And one of their friends naked on a diving board, jumping up and down. And watching him and just being sort of horrified by the male genitalia. Like I didn't, I didn't understand that a penis and balls were connected. I thought they were two different things, like on different parts of your body. And then when he was jumping naked on the diving board and I was watching it, I thought, oh my God, that's, that's kind of horrifying. And so that whole novel came out of that memory. And then Drinking Closer to Home came out of my mother had a heart attack and we all went back. And we were all around the bed and that was happening. And I wrote a short story about that, which was uh, published. And that came out of that. So they all came out of like a single idea, short story, then a novel. That's really great. So Jessica, when, when we've interviewed other writers, you know, they have different processes. And 
my thought has always been that somebody has a really great idea for a beginning and then probably a really pretty good idea for an ending. And maybe they're writing towards that ending. Is that what you do? No. Uh, no, I, so I write every day and then at the end of the day, I write in all, I put, hit that caps button and then I write what I think is going to happen next. And so he's, you know, she's going to do this and he's going to do that and that's going to happen. And then the next day I go over what I just wrote and I write forward. And sometimes something like what I thought was going to happen happens and sometimes nothing like it happens. So I'm always just one step ahead or not even one step ahead. I'm just, I only look one step ahead. So I just keep going. And then the ends of all my novels, have none of them ended the way they end now. Every single one, when I ended the draft, it had totally different ending. And my editor was like, we have to end. Like, I think I'm bad at endings. Can you give us some examples of, of for people who are listening to this, who are going to be aspiring to be writers like you, an editor tells you something you did, especially an ending, that isn't as good as he or she wants it to be. And then what do you do next? What happens? So Kate Nitzel, who's a genius, is the person who edits my books. And so she's always said, so so you guys read Wonder Bread Summer and and Lexi. So in Wonder Bread Summer, the ending was violent and there was a murder. And somebody was just like smashed in the head with a frying pan. And which I've done a couple of times. And I think because my mother had this big black steel frying pan that she always fried in. It was like, you know, one of the things she did was cook dinner. She quit being a housewife. So she was abdicated of responsibility, but she would cook in this giant frying pan. And it was so heavy. Like I would pick, I was this little kid. I was always small for my age. I was always the smallest kid. And I would pick that thing up and it was so heavy. And I used to think then like, this would, this could kill somebody. Like if I hit myself in the head, I would die. <laughs> like it just seemed like a weapon. So I think, so I've done it a couple of times and Kate's like, no, you can't hit somebody with like a black, what is it, wrought iron, if it's black like that? Cast iron. Cast iron. You can't hit somebody with a cast iron frying pan and kill them. I was like, really? I kind of want to. And she's like, no, you can't. Figure something else out. So so I would just, I think I spent like a month, like every day I was writing a new ending and sending it to Kate and I'd write a new ending and send to Kate. And, wow. You know, and sometimes I'd send it to like six people. I'd be like, what, what do you guys think? And so I just, and then finally she'd be like, I think you nailed it. Like she never, it's not like she has an idea. She just knows what doesn't work. So she'll be like, it just doesn't work. And then I have to figure it out. So it's like, I, I love doing puzzles and I love doing the crossword and I love playing Scrabble. And so it's like, it's like doing a puzzle. It's like, okay, what, what goes here? What goes there? So that was Wonder Bread. The, the, interestingly, so when that book was optioned, um, you know, and there were, there were, there was the only book, there were multiple bids for that one. So there's a few people and they, and they, the only time people in Hollywood are, really nice to the writers when they're trying to buy their thing and they're competing against each other. So they would call me regularly and they'd like talk, talk keep me on the phone for like an hour and I'm going to do that. What do you want? Whatever you want, you know, it's whatever you want, whatever you want, I'll give you whatever you want. So, you know, so I ended up selling it to this really brilliant, great, amazing woman. And, when, and so when the script was written, she changed the ending to like what I had originally with like a death. It wasn't with a frying pan, but I was like, Oh, so I, so I sort of written a Hollywood ending that then turned into a literary ending and then went back to a Hollywood ending for the script. Wow. Hmm. Where is in the process is that? Cause I actually caught you when you were talking earlier, you're like in the film. I'm like, huh, I was talking about the novel. But, oh, yeah. So where are we at with that? You know, the, um, I think Matt's books have been optioned too. And so he can tell you also it's, 
It's almost like saying I bought a lottery ticket. It's kind of like, who cares? Unless you win, tell me about it. So it's like people will option these books and you do get some money, but unless it actually gets made and they'll renew the option and maybe they'll write a script, you know, so there's all these stages. Yeah. So none, so it's like a bunch of pregnancies. So all the books have gone to different stages, but nothing's been born yet. Hmm. So I I probably shouldn't even mention it, but. But it is always because interesting, the process. I'm going to stick with Wonder Bread Summer because I have some burning <laughs> questions. Too. Um, mostly the Billy Idol uh, scenes. Uh, yeah. You got, have you heard from his people? No, and I love Billy Idol. I mean, I know that somebody sent, I know HarperCollins sent him the book and because they think he had a book out. I don't think it was with HarperCollins, but he had, it might have been. He had a book out and it was at the book fair and I know somebody at HarperCollins went over there and handed him the book. And... Uh, no, no, I love him. It's like, you know, come on. You yeah. know, and I gave him like, I gave him like a big penis so he wouldn't sue me. And I, everything, you know, I think he would be very appreciative of how you handled him. Yeah. And I his mean, likeness. I mean, I, I, I like, you know, I, I watched videos of him and I listened to him and I tried to get his speech pattern. Yeah. And he seemed like a really likable guy. And so he was sort of heroic in that, in the book. Yeah, he was. He was, yeah. he was someone, you know, he offered help. And uh, he was, yeah. so I was yeah. just wondering if, if, if I mean, people he was read kind. like, that show up in your book of that stature. He's a legend, obviously. Um, if they have comments or anything you ever hear from them. I mean, if he read it, he never let me know. I mean, it was funny because the lawyers at HarperCollins, you know, the first thing they're like, you have to take Billy Idol and make him fictional. And I was like, there's just no way. I love Billy Idol. He's Billy Idol. Like, no. You know, like, it's, who else would wear leather pants? Like, right. no. So so then they came back and they said, okay, well, we have to make sure that he's not you know, spending his life speaking out against cocaine and drugs and that he's like, when I was like, okay, so I just get on the, you know, get on the internet, Google him. And like his blog is like, you know, I don't know. It was like, you know, did buy cocaine and went out my triumph last night. <laughs> it was just like, no, we, we're okay. Yeah. I, was just saying, yeah I, think I just sent it to them. I was like, I think we're fine. They're like, all right. Um, it's funny. Cause he, he's actually fairly fit. And uh, he, I was thinking he could probably play him. Yeah. <laughs> from 30 years ago. Yeah, he looks when this good. thing does get optioned, that would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he looks good. Um, and then the other question was just, I, I love the universe. And I actually, the, the, the dad was my favorite character oh. because he was sort of very straightforward and, and you know, seemed like he had a lot going on from a backstory standpoint. Right. But you didn't get too crazy in there. Obviously, there was a relationship with the drug dealer prior and all that. But I'm just right. wondering do you ever look at some of these characters you've made and maybe spin off or continue in a universe that you've established? No, no, not really. But I do like that dad too, because I was just thinking about how, you know, sometimes, especially with dads, I feel, and are you both, I know you're a dad. You're both dads. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes, especially with dads, they sort of, they sort of get the short end of things because people just make these assumptions and don't, you know, because they're men and they're being men and they're doing men things. And they don't understand that like there's this whole emotional world in there and that they're just they're just like bursting with love and they would just kill themselves for their children. And you know, I mean and so I just was sort of thinking, you know, he's kind of caught in that male thing. And then when she peeks closer, it's like, oh, this guy was doing everything for her. So I just right. and I feel like that's the case with a lot of dads, that they just they don't get the credit they deserve because it looks on the surface. Like they're doing yeah. less than the person who's like packing all the lunches and whatever. Maybe you guys are packing lunches, but I pack lunches. You pack lunches. I used to. My kids. Do I'm it the now. morning guy. You're the morning guy. I am the morning guy. Yeah. I mean, I think dads in general are more momish now. I mean, I think it's 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 
crossing over, but in that book, it was 1983. Yeah. Right. yeah. So 1983 dads weren't packing lunches. Yeah. Yeah, no the best, he just kind of clicked in at some point and he got shit done. And that's what was, mm-hmm. uh, it was probably a little unexpected, but he, he did it very calmly and, and right. obviously he had some sort of aptitude with what he was doing. That's what made me curious. Like, Oh, what's this guy's, this guy's deal, but it's cool. Right. Oh, and vice versa. There was a guy, when I was in college, there was a drug dealer in the neighborhood named vice versa, which is where I got that name. I was like that. I mean, vice versa, the drug dealer. I just always, I just loved his name. Like I didn't buy drugs and, but I just loved seeing vice versa to say his name. She was like, Hey, vice versa. Like, I just love being able to say hi to vice versa or like say to a friend, like, yeah, I was just down at Bancroft and I saw vice versa, you know, in the smoke shop. Like I just <laughs> loved that name so much. So when I was creating names for the book, I just like, I, I had to use the name vice versa. I'm just assuming the real vice versa has gone on is, is probably dead. I don't, I just, his, his, his way of life didn't lend itself to longevity. Is that what yeah, we're talking about so. right now? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. It's fair. Probably fair. Yeah. I mean, if he's, he's he doesn't look anything like vice versa in the book. So you mentioned before when we were talking about endings and feedback from your editor, you, you did mention that you'll send different endings out or different, different things out to different people. And that leads us to the sounding board question. So when you're writing, is there a group of people that you're asking to read your stuff aside from your editor? Um, and who are they? If so. So I do, I mean, I do have a writer's group of three guys. So it's three guys and me and they all have three or four books. Um, and so we will give each other chapters and, and they respond. And so it's not that I do everything they say, but I understand each of, we've been doing this for so long that I know like, if Ron feels one way, this, and if Jeff feels this way, then this, it might. So it's more like whatever they're feeling, I can figure things out. So I'll give it to them. And then I have certain friends where I might give some things, but not, you know, when, I mean, I think people have to be careful when they share their work because it has to be somebody who wants what you want for the story. So you can't give it to anybody who's competitive or who's mad at you or who, you can't give it to anybody who wants to destroy you. And, you know, and even people who love you sometimes want to destroy you. So you have to protect yourself. So I think at this point, I, you know, I really, you know, my brain automatically knows who, who to give certain things to. And then things like sentences and titles, like, you know, I'll looking for titles, I'll send it to 20 friends and they'll vote in on titles. Hmm. A little focus group action. Yeah. Like Sounds it. like you're, you're a charm with the titles. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, those titles, well, one of drinking clothes at home, my agent came up with that one. The other ones I think I came up with. They're so evocative. I'm mean, drinking closer to home is probably really personal at this point for some of us. Yeah. <laughs> at this stage of life too. <laughs> drinking inside. Drinking inside um, your home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you did touch on the publishing process a little bit, but maybe if you could go just a little d- deeper again for people who are sort of thinking maybe I could do this or maybe they're even trying to do it. How did it go for you um, with any of the books really? What's the exact sort of process? For We well, have to get an agent and then the agent sends it out. But I think anybody who wants to do it, you just have to do it. But you have to do it a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I mean, it was I was talking to another writer yesterday. Um, and I forget what we were talking about. She was talking about how people will say, 
uh, yeah, oh, you write books? And they're like, yeah, I, I, you know, as soon as I, when I retire, I'm going to write this book. Or they'll say, you know, I was always thinking I was going to quit my job and I was going to write this book. And I said to her, you know, nobody ever says, like, meets a surgeon and be like, you know, I was thinking of leaving underarm and go do surgery. And it's like, and people don't understand that, that if you're writing a book, you've been writing for so long, you, it's like medical school times 10. And, and it's not necessarily insulting because I don't take anything personally. It's hard to insult me, which reminds me of something somebody said to me yesterday, which I'll tell you later. <laughs> but um, it's not insulting so much as I just, I'm, I sort of think people, nobody's thinking this through. And it's like, if you want to write a book, keep your job and start writing every day. And once you've trained yourself to write, then write your book. But um, yeah, so I just think anybody who wants to write and the other thing is that people say, oh, I really wish I could. I really want to write. I really want to write. I really want to write. And then in my, I never say this to anybody because I just wouldn't, but I'll say it to you guys. But I'm always thinking, so write. I mean, it's not like nobody's stopping you. Like you have a pen or you, maybe you have a computer. Most people do. But if you don't, you have a pen or you can find, you can go to the bank and get one. I mean, so it's just, you know, so it's just sort of, you want to do it, do it. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I find that people who write, Right. The writers I know wrote no matter what. Like they had a job, they had kids, you had this, like you write, you, you figure it out. How long did you, so are you, are you classically trained from a school standpoint? No. So then my next question is, is like, when did you get the confidence to say, Hey, I'm going to make a go of this is actually something I've is going to, is gaining traction for me. I'm getting a good response. I'm all in. This is my career. Yeah. When was that point? Do you remember that? No, I don't think I hit that point yet. <laughs> no, it's hard to have confidence because you don't know. Yeah. So, no, I don't think I hit that point yet. I mean, I was writing, you know, sort of privately in Canada and not telling anyone. And I wrote for a year every single day for three or four hours every single day for a year. And I always read a lot. And so I was reading, you know, a book or two a week and writing every day. Nobody knew I was doing this. And, um, and at the end of the year, and I was married to somebody at the time, at the end of the year, he lost the disc with all the, everything I wrote. So it's all gone. And, um, you know, so I was sort of training myself to write. And then at some point in that period of time, I had one of the short stories I'd printed. And I thought, I'll just send this out. And I sent it and it got published. And so that was the moment when I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I can do this. Right. But that was after doing it four hours a day, every day, actually for maybe a, a couple of years with nobody knowing. So well, this show is about inspiration. So, uh, it's going to be, people are going to have problems when they listen to the show and feel like you haven't made it yet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're going to look true. at your body of work and then be like, <laughs> all right, I quit. No, but I think, <laughs> but I think we, none of, I think, I mean, making it is a hard thing to judge and it almost, writing is so hard that you have to be okay with, you have to be happy doing it. Yeah. Because the publishing is outside of you and the response to the work is outside of you and the reviews are outside of you. And even whether it gets published or not is, is outside of you. It's all beyond your control to a certain extent. So you have to just be happy being in your head doing it. And yes, it's way better to get published than not, but you just have to keep trying. I mean, so that would be my thing is like, you just keep trying. If you want to do it, just do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. I, I want to do the audience a favor. Maybe it's just me, but you just kind of glazed over. I think you said your husband lost the disc that had contained all of that writing. 
Yeah, like a year and a half of writing and of four hours a day. Well, what happened? Wow. What happened then? Well, he, I mean, he was sort of funny because I gave him the disc and I said, well, let's, you know, there's a bunch of short stories that I finished and let's print them all. He had printed the one that I ended up sending. Said, and I didn't have a printer at home. And so he gave it to him. He said, you take it to work and print it for me. And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. He was, he was like kind of a jockey guy, you know, went to Exeter and played football. He was like, yeah, yeah, I'll print it. So he, I gave it to him and he, you know, and then like a week later, did you, did you print that? I didn't print, I'll print it next week. And then it, this went on for like, my, did you print that? Print it. And then one day I took, it was, we were living in Toronto in the middle of the city. So I took the subway down. I showed up at the office. And I was like, Hey, and I never got mad because it's like, whatever. I, I, you know, I was just, I was like, Hey, let's, you know, I'm here. Let's, let's get the disc and let's print all the stories. And at this point it was like month seven or something. He's like, ah, yeah. What? I was like, what? He's like, ah, I can't find the disc. Oh my gosh. He's like, you can't find it. I don't know what it, you know, I was like, so we looked in his office and he's like, I, just, I don't know. I don't know where the disc is. So, so that was, that was all the writing. And I just thought, well, you know, I taught myself something and it, this same husband who's actually a really nice guy. I really like him. He's like, I mean, he's a very close friend. We text all the time and his, his wife and I, we text all, I mean, he's very close, but, um, the same husband, when I went to graduate school, put the contents of our entire house and our entire life's accumulations and everything we had and owned and everything I inherited from my dead grandmother and everything, photo album, and everything I'd ever had in my life in a storage bin and went traveling for a few months and never paid the bill and it was gone. So I lost it. Everything I've ever had in my life was gone. So it was, so it was sort of like, wow. it, yeah, so those were both exercises in letting go. It was like, okay, you just got to let go of all this stuff. My God, I'm handling this worse right now than you did <laughs> when it happened. I am so pissed off right You're now. You're a little red. And I'm also like, <laughs> fired up. Well, I hope I don't do something like that. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Well, when it, the stuff, it came down to photos. Like in my head, it was like, what, what was the most painful? And when we have a daughter together, it was the baby photos. It was the baby, mm. the baby stuff. But. I used to make duplicates and send them to his mother and my mother. And eventually those two mothers sent me back. Great. Photos. Nice. Happy ending. <laughs> sort, sort of. of. <laughs> sort of. Not, not, not happy. But. I miss my grandma's dishes and jewelry. I was a little relieved. You know, there's a lot of jewelry. <laughs> All right, Jessica, this has been great. So now we get to like the meat of our show and our show promise, which is the creative house. And those are the th first three to four things someone who's an aspiring novelist or writer, um, whenever they turn off this show, uh, what are they going to do? And it can be very granular and tactical. It can be very broad and, and you know, 30,000 foot view, but it will set them on the path to achieving what they want to achieve by after they listen to this. Okay. So go. Yeah. Oh, Oh wait, you don't, you're not going to ask me a specific one. I just no, have to say no, what like three or four. Oh, okay. Four. Oh, oh, okay. No wonder you asked me if I wanted to prepare. Yeah. So I thought you were going to say, do, I thought it was like a fill the blank. No, no, no not is, a fill the blank. Yeah, we are throwing <laughs> you in the that. deep end. Okay. All right. So somebody who wants to be a novelist. All right. Okay. <laughs> you guys were, you were right in asking me to prepare, but no, I can oh, think of this. We try. No, I think, uh, so first of all, I think anybody who wants to write should write and just shut up and write. So yeah, because everybody can. And the other thing is, I think the environment will never be perfect. The, the system will never be perfect. You'll never be given the time. You'll never have the silence. You'll never have the right pistachio nuts. You'll never have the right tea. Nobody 
nobody in your world is going to stop what they're doing and clear out a space for you and say, here, go write a novel. Nobody. The people who love you most won't do that because they're busy living their own lives. So you have to create, you have to do it no matter what. And you cannot train yourself to only write when it's silent and your desk is clear and the laundry's done and the dishes are done and you're everybody's asleep. And, you know, people have just, you know, all these things. <laughs> what is the word? Oh. No, I totally understand. Yeah. It, it just, you want everything to be perfect. It's just not going to be. Never, ever, ever will be. So there has to, you have to accept the fact that you will never have the conditions. The conditions will never be as you want them to be ever. And so if you accept that fact and you think I will write in spite of the conditions, then you will write. And because pe- everybody has an excuse. Well, I can't, you know, I can't write because my kids are, because you know, I sleep, because I have to watch Grey's Anatomy or, you know, it's like. It's a bad excuse. Right. But it's like if you're watching it because you're choosing to watch it or right. if you're playing, you know, so if you, if you really want to write, write no matter what the conditions. So I think training yourself to write in any space or time is good. And I write, I'll write in, if I have 15 minutes, I mean, if I have to be somewhere, and I have 15 minutes, I'll open my computer and work on something for 15 minutes. Like it doesn't have to be five hours and 15, you can, you get 15 minute increments many times in the day. In fact, um, I kind of write in 20 minute increments. So I, you know, I have intense focus for 20 minutes and then I'll stand up and I'll play a word on Scrabble and I'll, you know, look at something and then I write for 20. So I go in and out and in and out. Because I think the expectation to stay highly focused for a long period of time is absurd. It's like we don't do that in any. Nobody should do that. So I. So I think that's another thing. So forget about the conditions being perfect. The conditions, which was the word I was looking for, the conditions will never ever be perfect. So write in any condition. Write if you want to write, and write in or 25 minute, 25 minute increments, write in 20 for 25 minutes and then stand up and do a yoga pose and then write for 25 minutes and do something else and then write for 25 minutes. And if you do that, you'll be able to do anything. And, and you can write, if you get two hours a day out, you can write a novel. You can get a draft of a novel in a year. Wow. That's really like, I'm just intrigued by this because like we've said already, we've interviewed other writers. If I were to hear Matt Norman's process, for example, it was different than that. It was more hours on end and maybe that's different now, but um, it definitely seemed like a long period of time where he was sitting at his computer and writing. And he did say at the end of the day that, you know, similar to you, you're going to have a large swath of something done over a period of time, but your methodology is totally different. And it's just good that different people who want to write, don't have to think here's how to do it. There's multiple ways to do it. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, I think if anybody who can take, if you really want to write a novel, if you can get two hours a day, five days a week in one year, you'll have a draft. So I just now wrote in eight months, 87,000 word novel. So, and that was in eight months and that was fast because I was working with somebody, but you know, it's just because I think if you, if you give yourself all day, if you put somebody in a room and you give them all day to write, they'll just like freak out and have anxiety and they'll be, you know, but if you say to somebody, you only have 25 minutes, like they won't waste the time. They just go for the 25 minutes and then you say, okay, now you have to stop. (laughs) And then you go do something else. And then it's like, you only have 25 minutes. And the other thing is that you can do anything for 25 minutes. Like you can do sit-ups for 25 minutes. You can write for 25 minutes. You can pick up dog shit for 25 minutes. You know, there's pretty much 
You can tolerate anything for 25 minutes. You can sit in a bad movie for 25 minutes. Are you, is that any of that driven by deadlines? For me, well, this book I'm working on now, right was, now. Dri- was driven by a deadline. It's actually I, kind of due tomorrow. But oh, okay. Well, we don't want to keep you from that. No, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> I'm powering through. You, you have 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got 25. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like there's all those Os- the Oscars are tonight. So at the ads, I'll like. Yeah. yeah. Or, during, or during some of the speeches. Yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. During every speech. Except for the British people who are very concise. They're awesome. Yeah. Well, that was great. Um, and I, I'd actually throw the, the, the single sentence Hal as a bonus Hal on the back here. Cause, um, that, that was just a really brilliant sort of unlock. I think it's going to be an unlock for a lot of people. The singles. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the single sentence that has to interest you. So it has to be something that opens that it's like, if you're really interested in that, then you can write about it. The other thing is people I think are always trying to find the thing that might sell or that somebody might buy. And that to me is absurd. It's like writing is hard and you're going to be in your head working on this for, let's say two years, you know, a year of a draft, a year of revision. And if you're going to work on something that doesn't interest you, that's, it's insane. Like that's, that's not okay. So it has to be something that you're utterly interested in and then you want to sit with it. Jessica, last thing we know that you're working on something new, um, which is really, really cool. So we'll let you explain it, but it has to do with potentially a new TV show, I believe. Yeah. So the, so I also ghostwrite books. So most of them or all the other ones, my name's not on them. And so you don't know I wrote them and it has somebody else's name on it and that's fine. And, um, I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. But this one is a CIA agent who I met who was an undercover operative in Afghanistan and all over the Middle East and in North Africa and in Europe and stopped all these poison plots and saved all of our lives and took down all these terrorists and was interrogating like the worst terrorists in the world, you know, in these black sites and just, she's just this incredible, she's like a superhero. She's just unbelievable. And she was recruited out of a sorority at USC out of the Delta Gamma house. And she's blonde and really pretty and friendly and nice. And she's Jewish and she's just like totally great. She's from Southern California and I'm from Southern California so she and I, so we wrote, so, she, you know, we wrote this book proposal. So we're doing this together. So this isn't, it's with collaboration. So we're doing this together. And we wrote a book proposal and then we were in California together. We're both from there. We were in California together. And, uh, on, in one day we got offers from like ABC and Fox and I think NBC or CBS, one of the other things and, and a publisher all within like five hours for the, for the book. And we were together, you know, she lives in Dallas now and I'm, I'm in New York and Baltimore and we were in California together. We're like, this is, this is kind of fun. You know, so we were like in the car going to our agent's office at CAA, you know, to meet, to talk about the television offers and on the phone with the publisher to talk about the book. And then it all kind of happened in 24 hours. And then, you know, and, and then, the, you know, we counter offered, like, we want this, we want this, we want this, and we want this because we had multiple offers. And so ABC took it and this wonderful person at ABC took it. And so they sent us a note, oh, they, they want to meet you. They want to meet the two of you tomorrow morning at, I forget what time, 11 o'clock. So we were both happened to be in California. We were going to hang out, but we were there actually visiting our families for a week. And I just had beach clothes. I just had like jeans. I didn't have any t-shirt that wasn't, it, it was like everything I had like was just kind of grubby and I didn't have any good shoes. And, and she was the same. She was visiting her family. And so we got this email at night from ABC. The executives want to meet you tomorrow morning at 11. I'm thinking, oh, 
I mean, to meet the agent, it's one thing because she's been my agent for years and all my books. But for this, I'm thinking, hey, I gotta look, we got to look. Yeah, look okay. Like they're going to buy, you know, they're buying this. We got to look at it. And so we're on the phone. What are we going to wear? And, and she's like, dude, I just put on my 70-year-old mom's jeans and I think I'm going to wear them. And I'm like, oh, man. Like I can't, I, don't, I can't wear my, my 80 year old mom doesn't have jeans. Cause like every pair of jeans I have was like, red. it was all beach stuff. So it was like 11 o'clock at night and my whole family and my nephews and my husband and my kids and my nephew's girlfriends and my sister and my brother and my brother's husband and their kid. I mean, every, we're all at the beach in this big house. It's 11 o'clock at night. And so I got, I have to buy something to wear tomorrow. And so we get, everybody's online, you know, and the only thing open we were in Venice beach, the only thing open was, um, Ross Dress for Less. So I'm like, who will nice. go to Ross Dress for Less with me at 11 o'clock at night? And so my 80-year-old Jewish dad, who's like game for anything, you, you, there's nothing you say to him where he doesn't say yes. He's like, yeah, I'll go. And then my nephew's girlfriend said, I'll go. And then one of my daughters said, I'll go. So we head out to Ross Dress for Less, and I got in a fitting room, and they're all bringing me clothes to try and find something at Ross Dress for Less. And it was just me and a bunch of women who are clearly shoplifting. Like I'm just watching these, it's 11 o'clock at night. It's like these shoplifters, like you see them maneuvering the store, the people who work there and us. And my dad, for some reason, found the outfit I could wear. So we, so I get dressed. She's in her 87-year-old mother's jeans. And they give us a dress and they said, well, they'd like to meet you at uh, Ellen Pompeo's house. And she's the star of Grey's Anatomy and she's mm-hmm. this wonderful person. And we're like, oh. We're like, okay, we'll go to Ellen Pompeo's house and, and meet. And so we went and it was the her, the head of her company and her and us and a secretary. And we sat on, out there and just laughed our asses off for a couple of hours and cracked up. And they were like, let's do this. And we were thinking, you are two incredible women. Yeah, let's do this. And so it's happening. So awesome. we're doing it. That's Congratulations. Wow. Thanks. That sounds like a huge whirlwind. And, and does That's everyone really go cool. like that? No, and it was just like, you know, and then we get back and then we get the book contract. I mean, it was like, it was kind of a great, you know, it was the other thing that was great is that it was with somebody else. It's like all, a lot of this public, it's like all, it's you, it's your book, you're alone. It's like, you can be happy and nobody's quite as happy. It's like, you know, when you have a kid, like you're thinking, I love this kid. And the only other person who loves it this much is the other person you had the kid with. And like everybody else, they think they love it, but nah, you know, they're, you know, so it's That's sort awesome. of the same thing. So it was like, it yeah. was kind of cool to have it with this other person. Like it was like the two of us together were like, that was so much fun. That's Wasn't great. that fun? So anyway, so we're, so knock on wood, because of course in Hollywood, anything can die at any moment. Hmm. And then the book, which we're finishing today during the we're Oscar hours commercials. away <laughs> <Yeah>. from delivery. <laughs> right. We were hours away from delivery. It has to be delivered to the CIA for approval. So the CIA yeah. has to read the whole thing and- that's awesome. Do we have to submit this podcast to the CIA? No, say because yes. I haven't given say out yes, anything. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. We would get so much street cred if you just say yes right now. Yes, you do. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, I will button that up and Give please us send address. us the CIA contact so we yes. can uh, send that off. Yeah. CIA is kind of cool. I mean, I loved working on this. Are you kidding? I'm going to put like a little badge next to this. Oh, uh, I mean, it was just like talking to her about the C- stuff she did in the CIA. It's like, that is cool, man. That was cool stuff. I just like to read it and see it. Thank you. Well, thanks for hanging out. Thank you, guys. This was thanks a lot for of reading fun. my book. I haven't had to stop myself from laughing as many times in any other episodes. It well, was awesome. why wouldn't you laugh? You're not allowed to laugh. No, on no, the because it would have been yeah. so much. Your stories are incredible. Yeah, and I was thanks. just blocking myself from doing it. It would have been annoying for all the people to hear. But anyway, it was, <laughs> it was great. This is hugely enjoyable. How can people 
find you? Are you on the social channels? Do you I have forgot about accounts? That you guys did email me and say to say that. So, uh, so I'm, the thing I like most is Instagram. I think it's fun, but I'm not sure if anybody knows I'm on there. So I think it's, I don't know what it is, but I think it's my name, Jessica Anya Blau at Instagram. I don't know. And on Facebook, I am on Facebook and there's also an author page and the author page might say trouble with Lexi or it might be Jessica Anya Blau author page. But I do have Facebook, which I do go on, you know, like maybe once every couple of weeks, which is good just to check on people. Instagram, I love. And Twitter, I go on sporadically because something hits me. And I think Twitter, it's definitely at Jessica Anya Blau. Oh, and I have a webpage, which is just jessicaanyablau.com. Instagram's definitely Jessica Anya Blau. Looking at it right now. Okay, yeah. So follow me there because I'm going to France in five days and I'll be gone for six weeks. All right. Sounds like a good place to be. I will say I had to work extremely hard to get your attention on Instagram to follow us, which you only end up following us. Did I? About a week ago. Guilt trip? So. Oh, you know, because I just, I like flip through and like <laughs> in the car. Upcoming, <laughs> ask upcoming guests. Wait, but. Just gone, you blow. No response. <laughs> well, I don't even, see, because I don't quite understand what I'm doing. So I don't even know where it is. Like, did you ask me to follow you? You ask me? No, I don't realize it works no, that way. No, I, I will tag you. Oh, you tag and me? And it'll be at just gone, you blow. So you'll get an alert, like. Hey, Creative House talking about you oh. or mentioning you. And, and did you did this happen? A couple times. <laughs> wow. Okay. When you we when we finish here, show will you show me because I just don't know well, how this stuff is. I just like absolutely. actually the publicist at HarperCollins and my daughter set up the Instagram and so and then for a while my daughter was taking stuff down. She's like, You are a freak. You can't put that up. All right. And Give then us I finally their addresses. <laughs> yep. Finally I changed my password so she can't take stuff down. All right. Taking it, taking control back. I right. Like it. But I still haven't figured out like the following. That's okay. We're all, we're all square now. Cause you followed us. <laughs> I did follow it, you. It was, just, okay, it was yeah. a lot of work. I like you guys. <laughs> totally. I think Thank you're you. great. And I love your logo. Thank and you. I've listened to many of your interviews and I thought they were really excellent. You guys are Thank great. You. Thank you. And Thank I will you. tweet you. I will yes. tweet you and I will Instagram. I'll even put you on Facebook. Do it. Even though I hate going on Facebook, but I will put you there. I will tell you. For Based us. on analytics, that's where our audience is. Is it? Okay, I'm putting you on Facebook. All Thank the, you all very, very much. Okay. Thank this you. This amazing. Thank you so much. Wow, Jed. Jessica, that was refreshing. Um I think uh, one of the big takeaways outside of all the really great writing process tidbits she provided was the fact that I'm going to have to use the explicit label in iTunes for the first time. There were quite a few references to male genitalia and the words male genitalia. So that was somewhat unusual. No, but I thought it was great because I think she was very honest, very open. And like she said, she, uh, she just is curious about people and basically everybody out there, you need to suck it up and just write. Don't downplay. Like you can just turn this on. You got to work for it. And also there's not one way to do it. And, you know, Jessica was really honest about the fact that 25 minute increments, for example, are a really good call. So you can do it. You can do it. So like always, uh, follow us on creativehowpodcast.com and all the social handles, Creative How Pod. Show notes, smash the likes, get after it, folks. Destroy the likes. Hey, Jed, did you hear our kick-ass intro music?
Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative Howe. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on you know YouTube, that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.